we are uh, in week three, our final week of introduction to the book of Genesis this morning. We're going to be going section by section through the book of Genesis over the next good while. Uh, and we've been doing a fairly lengthy introduction of the book. We've talked about the author and when it was written. We've talked about what function Genesis has in the text of Scripture. This morning, we're going to take a look at the book of Genesis in what's called the cultural context, the book of Genesis in the world that it was written. Um, we are also uh, doing a Q&R through this series, so if you have questions, you can anonymously text that number, and uh, there we will try to do some Q&R at the end if, uh, if we have any questions. Um, one thing I heard last week was that somebody had questions, but they didn't have enough time to type them in at the end. You can, you can text that number anytime during the service if you think of a question, and you don't have to wait till the end. So, um, Yeah. So we're going to talk about a couple different things this morning. But first, I want to talk about what's called uh, high-context culture and low-context culture. And this is kind of a geeky sociological thing that we won't get too deep in. But there's two broad kinds of cultures in the world. A high-context culture, uh, you, you'd see a high-context culture in a, in a country like Japan or China, where there's, a, there's kind of a, a uniformity in the people, and there's a lot of assumptions about how to live. And a low-context culture is a culture more like the United States, where there's a diversity of people. There's not an un, unwritten set of rules that everybody abides by. As an example of that, I, I want to show you a story. Uh, I went to college at the University of Montana for a little while. And uh, I lived in a dorm. And I got my food at the cafeteria. At the cafeteria, there, there's all of these things, right? There's, there's hot food that they will make for you. There's like coolers with prepackaged stuff. I had like a microwave in my dorm so I could take stuff with me. I had a card that was like preloaded with food money or something. And, and I had to navigate this environment where I, I went into this cafeteria for the very first time, not really knowing what to do. And I knew I had this card, but I didn't know how it worked, and I, I didn't really know the process. So what the college had done, because it knew that incoming freshmen were all confused, it had signage. There was, there was a sign for the different kinds of food that were offered. There was a sign for the line that you went into to get your food. There was a sign above the register. There were directions on how to use your card to pay and how to refill your card when it was empty or how to have your parents refill your card when it was empty. Uh, and, and so there was a lot of instruction for a diverse group of people that were unfamiliar with the environment. That's a low-context culture. On the weekends, I would go home to my parents' house. My parents had a high-context culture. I knew my parents. I knew that they loved me. I knew where the refrigerator was, and I just took food out of it and ate it. 
because we had an environment that we were all unified in. We had a set of assumptions about the culture and we didn't have to have a lot of instruction and signage and explanation to get me food. I just just knew what was going on. And when we come to scripture, we interact with a people, the people of God, the people of Israel, who live in a high context culture. I want to read you this quote from R.A. Simpkins. He says, the Bible was produced by a high context society for high context readers. It assumes a rich culture that the biblical writers felt no need to describe. It's not surprising then that the Bible lacks any explicit articulation of the Israelites' worldview and values toward the natural world. Their worldview and values were simply assumed by all members of the society. They formed the presupposition of the biblical writers rather than the subject of their discourse. If we hope to glean their unexpressed worldview and values from the biblical text, then we must become acquainted with the ancient Israelite culture that is assumed by the text. In other words, we must read the Bible from the high context perspective in which it was written. What Simpkins points out is that the authors of the Bible, they don't set out to do a very detailed uh, explanation of their, their ideas about the world. They just write to their own people and there's a set of assumptions that they all share. And because of that, when we get into the book of Genesis, we're going to quickly realize that Moses is not going to give us all the information that we want. We see this very clearly in the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Immediately, I have a question. What's going on with the earth? How did it, get, it God said in the beginning he created it, but now it's, it's formless and void. Why is it formless and void? Why, where did the waters come from? None of this is explained. It's just assumed as part of the ancient worldview. And you keep going through Genesis and it never gets explained. See, we're foreign students of scripture and we need to begin to understand how the ancient Israelites thought and communicated in order to understand it. And you might be thinking like, well, that sounds hard. I want to just be able to open my Bible and read it and understand it. Why? If God wants to communicate to me through his word, why did he make it so hard to understand? And that's, that's similar to saying like, I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to go to a foreign tribe in Papua New Guinea and if God wants them to hear the gospel, God better teach them English. No missionary would go onto the mission field thinking that. They would, they, would, they would appreciate the culture that they were sent to and they would learn how to understand it. And we have to do the same thing with the Old Testament. So this morning we're gonna, we're gonna talk about three different things. We're gonna talk about how Genesis interacts with other literature in the ancient world. We're also going to talk about how Genesis original readers, they're asking different questions than we are about life. And then thirdly, we're going to talk about something called world pictures. So first of all, Genesis is in an interaction, in a dialogue with other literature in the ancient world. I've got a picture to show you. There you go. 
Someone this morning said, why is Elizabeth Warren on the slide? And I laughed because that's not Elizabeth Warren. Who is it? Kate McKinnon. Sinners. Sinners who watch Saturday Night Live. So this is a famous character that she plays, right? And the thing about SNL, if you ever watch SNL, is they're constantly interacting with the world, right? If you just, if you flew in from another planet and caught this skit, it probably wouldn't be funny. Some of you might go, it's not funny anyway, which is fine. That's not the point. The reason it's funny is because we're part of a common culture and we know what's going on outside of this particular television show. SNL only works if you know what's going on in the rest of the world. And so when we approach the book of Genesis, we need to understand that there are other people writing other books about the beginning of the world. Samaria, Egypt, Canaan, Babylon, they all have stories about how the world came to be. I'll give you a couple examples. In Egypt, one of the Egyptian creation stories said, there is a God named Atum, and he created himself out of something called Nun. And Nun is this ancient dark water. And from his self-creation, he creates all the other gods. So there's some, there's some things about that that are similar to Genesis. There's this water thing, but then there's some differences as well. Later on in Egyptian literature, we get a, a quote. This is from what's called the instruction from Merikari. He was a pharaoh. And it says, provide for people the cattle of God, for he made heaven and earth for their liking. So in Egyptian culture, they said that there was a reason why people were created to be cattle. And that either means we're like, are we milk cattle or beef cattle? And I don't know. It's kind of unclear. But there's certain things about Egyptian culture that they have said is true about humanity based on what they believe about creation. A famous story called the Enuma Elish, which comes from Babylon, records the story of Apsu, which is the water under the earth, and Tiamat, which is the sea, and they give birth to the other gods, but Apsu grows tired of the other gods, and he wants to kill them. But one of the gods, Ea, kills Apsu, and then Tiamat gets mad, and she tries to seize power over the other gods and abuses them until Marduk, who is the god of Babylon, steps up and battles with Tiamat. He kills Tiamat and he divides her body in half. Half of her body he makes the land and half of her body he makes the heavens. He divides her in half. Maybe there's, that sounds a little familiar. And then Marduk, he, he hears a complaint from the other gods. The other gods are tired of working they don't like, they're, they're building irrigation ditches or something. It's a weird story. And he says, and they say, oh, we don't want to work anymore. And so Marduk, he makes people. He writes, or is written about him. He says, I shall compact blood 
I shall cause bones to be. I shall make stand a human being. Let man be its name. I shall create humankind. They shall bear the God's burdens that those may rest. So Marduk, as his, his promise to the other gods, he creates these lower life forms that we call us to be the slaves of the gods. And so in Babylon, when you went to Babylonian Sunday school as a child and you said, why are we here? They would tell you, well, you are designed to be a slave of the gods. In Canaan, they have a story about Baal. Baal is a, a false god that's in the Bible a lot. And he battles against the sea goddess Yom. A lot of, a lot of bad sea going on. And he kills Yom, and that gives him the right to set up his throne. And the reason I share these this morning is that there's a lot of points of similarity in all these stories. There's, there's darkness, there's emptiness, there's water, there's chaos. But then there's a lot of differences. And what we have to pay attention to when we read the biblical story is that just like SNL is riffing off of other things in the world. Moses is riffing off other things in his world. And he's saying, he's making statements about other faiths, other religions. He's saying, you know, that whole story about the big war and the violence in Babylon, that's not really true. This is how it really happened. And Genesis is constantly using the same kind of language to make slightly different points about the world. We're going to see that over and over and over again as we read through this book. So while Genesis' original audience was interacting with various kinds of information in the world, they were also asking different questions. Bible scholar Tim Mackey says, if we're introduced to the Bible in the context of debates about its meaning then the debates determine what we look for and they determine the questions we ask. If we're not just reading scripture for its own worth, if we're reading it to answer questions that we have today, we can miss what it's really saying. And Tremper Longman has an example of this. He says, today I read Genesis 1 and 2. My thoughts go to high school biology and physics. How does the biblical depiction of creation relate to the Big Bang theory and evolution? This comparison would not have occurred to ancient authors and readers. It is certain that the biblical account of creation was not written to counter Charles Darwin or Stephen Hawking, but it was written in light of rival descriptions of creation. The questions that we have, the issues that get raised in our world today, are not the same questions that the ancient Israelites were dealing with. They were dealing with ancient Babylon and ancient Samaria and those questions. But when we come to this text and we ask the wrong questions, we get the wrong answers. Uh, Bible scholar John Walton has a really helpful analogy, I think. He talks about the theater. And he says, you can ask a question about something and get a wrong answer if you don't understand what you're asking. Imagine that you go to the play Hamilton in New York. And you're there with a friend, but you came, you had to go to the bathroom right as it started. And so you came in 10 minutes late 
and you lean over to your friend and you say, hey, how did the play start? And your friend says, well, the Richard Rogers Theater was built in 1925 by Erwin Channon. And you look a little confused. You're like, no, 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 no. How did the play start? Well, Lin-Manuel Lin Mar Miranda was inspired to write the musical after reading the 2004 biography of Alexander Hamilton by Ron Chernow. No, no, I mean, how did the play start? Well, Thomas Cale directed and Andy Blankenbluer choreographed the off-Broadway run at the Public Theater in 2015 before it moved to Broadway of July of that year. Those are all answers to that question, right? But they're the wrong answer. The right answer that you're looking for is Aaron Burr comes out and he begins to play the title song and he's joined by all the major characters who briefly recount their relationship with Hamilton. If you haven't seen it, that's, that's how the play starts. But if we come to something and we ask a question like that, we have a particular kind of answer in mind. But the one who answers back to us might answer it differently. And so when the ancient Israelites are asking questions, they're asking them in a certain way that we need to understand or we're going to get the answers wrong. One of the major issues that we have with this text is when we ask questions about the world, we want to know about material existence. We want to know where stuff comes from. We want to know how photons and electrons and molecules formed. We want to know what caused the right set of amino acids to coalesce into exactly the right proteins for life. But the ancient Hebrews, they just aren't asking those questions. They're asking questions about the function of the world. If you read Genesis, the first chapters of Genesis carefully, God makes some things, but a lot of the stuff that he makes is already there. That doesn't mean that God doesn't make it. It just means it's not that important to Moses' story. A lot of what we're going to read in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God organizing things. He's going to take things that either he created explicitly or just happened to be there in the story already and he's going to move them around and give them names and put them in places. And for most people, I think this makes a lot of sense. If you, if you work for a company, many of you work for companies, how well do you know its history? Who founded it? When was it founded? How much startup capital did they have? Who were the early investors? What are the names of the corporate officers on the paperwork filed with the state? You probably don't ask those kind of questions when you go to work for a company. Those are material questions about how the company was formed, how it came to be, but when you work for a company, you, you don't care. You're concerned with your job title and your responsibilities, other people in your department. Who do you report to? When are the pay periods? Those are questions about function. Where, where do I fit into this thing? And we're going to find that most of the questions that the ancient Israelites were asking had to do with function. Who are we? Who is this God we serve? Remember last week we talked about how they'd just come out of Egypt. They'd been brainwashed basically for 400 years by false gods. And they needed to get acquainted with who Yahweh their God was. How does the world work and what is my role in it? 
And that's a question that we should be asking as we read Genesis. So then, and we're going to get into it as we get into the creation account, but if you ask the question, does Genesis teach young earth creationism or old earth creationism or theistic evolution, I think the answer is no, it doesn't. It's just not talking about those things. Moses isn't concerned about those things. And there's places where we have to talk about science and, and philosophy, and, and, that's, and we'll do that. I mean, there's a few places specifically. Um, next week, we're going to talk about the first verse of the book, and I think it's important to say that God created everything. Like, that's kind of the starting point. I think when we get to Adam, we're going to have to talk pretty seriously about Adam and Eve being real people. But as far as the specifics of whatever scientific theory that you think works the best, we're always reading those things into the text from a modern perspective. And the problem with that is our science is always changing. Even in the couple decades that I have been acquainted with arguments about the Bible and science, both, all the sides have changed their views about a variety of things. Moses is asking different questions and he's answering those questions for his audience. And if we're going to understand this book, we need to know what those questions are. The last thing that I want to mention about the book of Genesis in the world that we have it in is that ancient people and modern people, all people employ what are called word pictures. Maybe you've heard of a worldview. What's your worldview? That's, that's a set of ideas that you believe about the world. What, are, what do you value? What do you, what do you know to be true? How do you base your decisions? That's your worldview. Your world picture is the symbol that you use to explain your reality. So I've got a picture of a Norse world tree. If you've read Norse mythology or um, maybe even seen the Marvel movies, I don't know. You, you, you maybe recognize this. This is a picture of the nine realms. And ancient Vikings would have considered this their picture of the world. See, there's a giant tree in the middle. But none of those ancient Vikings are looking out of their houses and going, why can't we see the giant tree from here? They're not, they're not foolish. They don't think this thing actually looks like this out there. It's just a device that they use to describe reality. And you might think, well, that's, that's something that ancient Foolish people did. We don't do that anymore, but we totally do. This is a picture of the solar system. Is that an accurate picture of the solar system? For all of you science, scientists out there? No, it's not. The planets aren't that close together at all. They're not that size. Earth is way smaller than Jupiter. So is that, is that wrong? What is that picture there for? It only took me like five seconds to find it on Google. 
Well, it's a helpful word picture because it it gives us information about how things really are, but it's not super accurate, but it's easy to communicate. There's a scale model of the solar system in Washington, D.C., and it's 2,000 feet long. It's like, you know, the little tiny earth and a little bigger sun, and and it puts them to scale where they would actually be, and it's really, really big because that's what the solar system is really like. But as a picture that's easy to understand, easy to grasp, and easy to communicate, we use stuff like this. Here's another one. This is a a hydrogen atom. Is that what a hydrogen atom looks like? No. But, But we use this kind of diagram to describe atoms and molecules all the time because it's easy to understand and easy to communicate. We can see the electron and we can see the proton and, oh, I get what that is. There's a YouTube channel called Minute Physics that has been making 3D animated models of atoms. Here's a picture of a hydrogen atom. I have no idea what that means. It's really cool. He has it animated and it makes all kinds of movements and undulations and stuff. I don't know enough about physics. He, tell, he says on his video that it's a much more accurate representation of what atoms actually look like. But for my money, it's not as helpful, right? Like, I don't, I don't really know what's going on there. But it's the same thing in the ancient world. Ancient people had a world picture that they used to communicate big ideas. I want to show you a couple examples. In Genesis 1.6, Moses writes, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. In Psalm 184.4, the psalmist says, praise him highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Job 37.18 says, can you help God spread out the skies as hard as a cast metal mirror? And there's dozens of these passages that talk about the sky as this, this canopy of water that's hard. And so some will come to the Bible and they say, well, the Bible is old and wrong because the sky is not made of a hard water barrier. Other people will come to the Bible and say, well, that line about God spreading out the skies, we know that the universe is expanding, so that must be what Job is talking about. The Big Bang and the expansion of the universe, that's what God is doing. He's spreading out the skies and it's written in the Bible. But the thing is, I don't think it's either one. I think it's just part of the world picture of the ancient Middle East. This is how people talked about creation. C. John Collins writes, skeptics and Bible science defenders share an assumption in common, namely that scientific language is the most accurate and therefore the most truthful kind of discourse. And then it follows that for the Bible to be true, it must address these scientific questions. And so we're going to get into some of these scientific questions and we're going to take a look at young earth creationism and old earth creationism and theistical evolution and and all of those things because those are the questions that we are asking as 21st century Westerners. But we need to start with the understanding that these are not the questions that Moses and his people are asking. 
they are asking a completely different set of questions. They have a completely different set of priorities and they're using a different set of language to communicate them. I think most importantly though, however, we need to recognize that these are not issues that the church needs to die over and divide over. There are, there are many, many Jesus-loving Bible-believing Christians that land across the spectrum of how to understand the book of Genesis. And we're going to try to tread carefully over the next weeks as we seek to find out what Scripture is teaching us about what is true about the world. And this is all really hard to grapple with. Genesis was written to this whole other culture. But imagine if God decided to write Genesis today to us using imagery and pictures and a language that we would understand. God, just make it clear. Just tell us exactly what's going on. And he did that. And then somehow he transported it back in time to the ancient Hebrews. Or he moved it forward in time to Americans a thousand years from now. They wouldn't understand it, would they? And that's the problem with speaking to a context is you can communicate to the people you're trying to communicate to, but outside of that, it's going to be harder to understand. But that's God's dilemma, right? If God is going to communicate to people, he has to decide who to communicate to. And he's decided to communicate, firstly, to the ancient Israelites, and secondly, to the early church. And to hold that word together for 2,000 years for us. And this is such a beautiful example of the kind of God we serve. We have a God that is not content to just be off in the heavens, to be doing his own thing. The God that we serve says, no, I'm going to pursue these people. I'm going to come to these people. I'm going to stoop down low to these people. And this brings us to the passage in Philippians where Paul says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. See, Jesus is intent on saving people, on restoring the world, on on ending the brokenness in our lives, in, in paying for the sin that we've committed against God. And at some point in eternity past, somewhere, God decided, I'm gonna do that in the first century. I'm gonna do that in ancient Israel, during the occupation of the Roman Empire. I'm going to become a human being living in this context. I'm going to serve these people. And coming down into this place, I'm going to affect salvation for everyone forever. Just like we find scripture as God accommodating the people that he's working with. We find Jesus accommodating the people that he's working with. He becomes 
a human man in a specific time, in a specific place to affect salvation for everyone. And then Philippians says, when he had become a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so in that coming to earth, coming to become a human being in lowering himself down, he brings us salvation. And we didn't, we didn't read it earlier, but the, the top of that passage says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. This is our calling as well. As, as Christians, we are called to go where people are and communicate that with them in ways that they will understand the message of God. Just like the missionary that I talked about a few minutes ago that goes to a foreign land and expects the people to learn English. We would never do that. So we go out into our city and we figure out how to use language and illustrations and words to teach the people in our circle what it means that Jesus loves them. That Christ died for their sins, that he offers them new life and new hope in the gospel. And it's not up to them to come to us. It's not up to them to figure out all of the Christian words that we use so freely. It's up to us to figure out who they are, to figure out how they speak, to figure out what their hopes and dreams and assumptions and view of the world is and figure out ways to explain the truth to them. And so I think, I think as, we, as we pursue the book of Genesis, we're going to learn a lot about what it means to be human. We're going to learn a lot about questions that, that are timeless, because God's word is timeless. But those questions are going to be filtered through this ancient people that received them from Moses. Uh, and it's going to be a lot of fun digging in to those answers. So, we've got a little bit of time for Q&R. Question one, or, yeah. Could a possible reason why most ancient cultures have a negative or dark association with water in their histories be because of the flood, considering that a lot of ancient cultures also have a flood-type account in their histories also? Yeah, that's a good question. So we're going to get into this specifically with the flood, but uh, almost all ancient cultures have a really weird relationship to water. And water is, is often representative of chaos, of darkness, of, um, I won't say sin because that's kind of a different thing, but just like disorder and, and general badness. And that question about the flood probably goes both ways. The flood is an example of God taking his creation backwards. 
We're gonna read in, in verse two of Genesis that, that the earth was formless and void and, and darkness covered the face of the deep and, and the waters, right? The, the earth is covered with water. And that's, the, that's the beginning, the state of disorder and chaos before God breathes his creation into it. And in the flood, God basically says, this creation that I made is broken and I need to remake it. And so the flood comes and turns the world back into a formless, empty void covered in water. And if you know the flood story, uh, Noah and his family are saved and, and we'll talk more about the specifics of that. But those two things are connected. The flood is, is doing something that is trying to tell us about what God's heart is about the, the, the whole thing, that, that, that there's this brokenness in the world that needs to be fixed, and in order to make it fixed, he's going to go back to the beginning and start over. And then I think that probably also informs some of the later understanding about water. The, the Jewish people, they were not seafaring people. They always considered the water to be kind of Weird and off limits. If you if you know anything about the Jonah story, that's it's very odd that Jonah flees in a boat to Tarshish because um, that's not really a Jewish thing to do to go out on the open ocean. But that's how much he wants to get away from his calling. But yeah, so there's there's a lot of dark water imagery involved in the flood story, and you mentioned that. All these other cultures have a flood narrative, and I think that's really important. I think that is going to help us when we start talking about, okay, well, did the flood really happen? And I'm, I'm, spoilers, I'm going to go with yes, but that lends some um, perspective to what all these ancient peoples thought about the flood. There's the, all, those, all those ancient creation stories, they all have a flood narrative in them. They all have a hero that either... Uh, gets wind of the God's plan to destroy the world or is told by one of the gods that the world is going to be destroyed and they all make a boat. It's all very similar. And in my mind, that says that there's probably something true going on there that all of these cultures are keying in on. Um, but that's for chapter six. <laughs> Any other questions? What is a good strategy for placing yourself in the shoes of people from an ancient culture that you don't understand when reading and interpreting scripture? Um, I mean, study is really a big one. That's, that's a lame answer. Just, just work at it. <laughs> um, I think the... The way that we begin to uh, see the Bible from that perspective is to just learn what they were seeing. And that takes um, us standing on the shoulders of men and women that are a lot um, more dedicated and devoted to ancient cultures than any of us are. Um, that, that means that we spend time reading um, authors that dig into, maybe sometimes literally dig into the ground and pull stuff out. It means we spend time reading authors that 
read ancient Akkadian and ancient Ugaritic and, and actually find these other cultural understandings that the people of Israel would be acquainted with. Um, it's a lot of just taking time and studying and, and learning and, and, you, and you begin to see through ancient eyes the more you kind of soak in it. And that's not, I mean, it's kind of like saying, like, how do you get a six-pack set of abs, right? Like, well, you just got to work really hard at it if that's your goal. Um, I, I love the Bible Project podcast. If you guys aren't subscribed to the Bible Project podcast, if you know the Bible Project makes those little, like, five-minute videos on YouTube about different things, their podcast is the two creators just basically planning the videos. And the, the episodes are 45 minutes to an hour long, and they just go really deep into these ideas. They're doing a, a series right now on ancient cosmology. So if, if you want to like dive into that, I think they're two episodes in, um, it'll track right along with what we're doing in the book of Genesis. Um, but again, Tim Mackey is the head of the Bible Project, and he has a PhD in Hebrew Bible. And um, he's an incredibly humble scholar who is really wise, and um, they do a really good job of making these things easy to understand. Um, but I think that's kind of, I think that's kind of what it is, is you just got to spend time in it. I'd get a good study Bible if you don't have one. Um, a lot of times, like the, the Faith Life Study Bible is a good one. The ESV Study Bible is a good one. Um, there's a few other really good study Bibles that spend time talking about the context of ancient passages. We talked about this a few weeks ago in our wisdom series, but there's, there's studying for application. Like, uh, th this is what this passage means, and this is how we apply it to our lives, which we should be doing. But we should also be studying for interpretation, which is this is what this path, passage means in its original context. And a good study Bible will start you on that path. Um, but yeah, it's just a lot of asking questions, not assuming you know what the passage is saying. We get in trouble when we, um, we think that there's a really easy interpretation. If, if there's words or sentences that you're like, I totally know what this means, look those up. See, see like, what do I really know what that means? Um, and that's helpful. But it, it really just takes a lot of, a lot of time and, and just a dedication to like little by little grow in your understanding of uh, ancient culture. Cool. That's, um, that's all I've got for today. We're going to crack open this book next week. And um, start, start asking and answering some of those big questions about life. Why are we here? What's the point of all this? All, it's all in there. But what I, what I want to take away from this morning is that God is always moving to meet people where they're at. And he's always trying to communicate in ways that people will understand. And this happens in scripture and it happens ultimately in Jesus. Jesus is the perfect representation of who God is. And he comes as a human being to say, this is what God is like. And he institutes this meal, again, just simple ritual. Do this in remembrance of me. Take this bread. Take this cup. 
This is my body. This is my blood. Just like, just like the solar system and the atom, are these things his body and blood? No, they're symbols. But they're things that help us understand what's going on. Jesus is broken for our sin. And by taking these things into our body, we remember that it's his power inside of us that brings us life. And as Paul encouraged us in Philippians, just like Jesus humbled himself, we as his people get the privilege of walking in humility as we go out into the world and figure out how to communicate this good news that Jesus is king and he has come to make the world right to everyone we know. So we're gonna sing. Um, The communion table is open. I just encourage you to um, just spend some time communing with the Lord. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.